Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to the beginning of chapter 12. That can be found on page 816 in the church Bibles that are provided. And as we come to uh, this passage we want to consider today, Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, we see growing opposition to Jesus from the Pharisees, the, from the religious leaders of the day. And the, this opposition that we'll read about today is going to center around two events that take place on Sabbath days. So the, the opposition has to do with the, the Sabbath, the nature of that, and what it looks like to keep the Sabbath. And so we'll get into that, but but through this opposition, we, I trust and pray that we will see uh, the beauty, the, the, the authority, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, and that we'll be reminded of what he has provided for us in saving us from our sins. And so let's, let's uh, read verses 1 through 14. Would you stand, please, in honor of God's word as we read the text we want to consider today? I'll go ahead and read it. Just please follow along in your copy. Matthew 12, 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, this is the Pharisees again, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is, When Our Religion Goes Wrong. When Our Religion Goes Wrong. And by religion, I mean our Christian faith, the practice of our Christianity. Obviously, our faith in Christ should impact everything we do. However, there are some dangers we need to avoid. And today, from the negative example of the Pharisees, I want to highlight three such dangers, three examples of of how our religion can go wrong. And just to be clear, the, the Pharisees in this passage are not Christians. Okay, they, they do not believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But the Pharisees were religious, and they were zealous, and so 
we can certainly learn from their poor example of these dangers we need to avoid. So that's why there's three, um, if you look in your bulletin at the outline, there's three um, points there. Those are going to be the three dangers I want to highlight. Originally, I was going to kind of weave them in as I went through the text, but I've changed my mind. I, I, I want to just work through the, the text first, and, and again, I want to be highlighting uh, what it teaches us about Christ, his uniqueness, his authority, and then at the end, um, kind of as by way of application, we'll we'll discuss the three dangers, okay? So, um, so that's by design. Don't get nervous if you're like, man, when is he going to get to point number one, right? Okay, so let's, let's begin to work through the text here. Matthew 12, 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. All right, so you see the scene there. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. Disciples are hungry. They just start start having some granola to snack on here, right? You know, and but of course, who should see it but the Pharisees? You know, I mean, it's almost kind of humorous, this scene. You know, you're thinking like, what are the Pharisees doing, you know, on the Sabbath? Are they just kind of walking around making sure no one breaks the Sabbath according to their definition of breaking the Sabbath? Because that, that's basically what it seems like here. Um, and we know at this point the Pharisees especially are keeping an eagle eye on Jesus, right? We've already started to see that opposition brewing. And, and so they're, they are watching Jesus like a hawk, <laughs> Um, and they confront Jesus and his disciples, in this case, accusing them of doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, what are they saying here? What, what is unlawful about what, they, what the disciples just did? Well, the problem wasn't that Jesus' disciples were picking grain from someone else's field. You might have thought, oh, well, yeah, they're stealing. No, no. Deuteronomy 23, 25 permitted people to do that, right? It's kind of like just a way of sharing, you know, no, no big deal, Okay. And that wasn't what the Pharisees were complaining about. Their complaint was that the disciples were doing that on the Sabbath. Right? Now, what's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the, is the last day of the Jewish week, right? We know um, in the Ten Commandments that were given to the, to the nation of Israel, the Fourth Commandment was to uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And Sabbath means rest. So the Sabbath was a day that was set apart for God, and no work was to be done on that day. It was, a, it was supposed to be a day of physical rest, of spiritual rest and worship to God. And so it's, it's real interesting, if you remember two weeks ago when we just finished off um, chapter 11, remember this beautiful invitation that Jesus gave to um, there in verses 28 through 30? He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for uh, uh, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? And this is exactly the controversy we see happening here. Uh, the Sabbath was very important to the Jews, and I'll explain why in a minute, but the Pharisees had made it such a huge burden, right? Uh, so this was a big deal. The Sabbath was was Again, it was, it was a mark of the covenant. It was one of the Ten Commandments. 
It was, a, it was actually the sign of the, the Mosaic Covenant that they were under. Uh, Exodus 16 says that. And so the Sabbath was very important. It was, uh, God says in, in Exodus 20, it was to remind the Jews of creation order, how God made the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. It was also, Deuteronomy 5 tells us, it was to remind the Jews of their redemption from Egypt. So the, the Sabbath was important to the nation of Israel, right? Sabbath keeping was one of the distinguishing marks of Jews that set them apart from the Gentile nations. And so by keeping the Sabbath, the Jews were, were to be like, you know, like a light to the nations. It was, it was to make them different. They were to be a, a blessing to the nations. They were to bring glory to God by keeping the Sabbath. And so keeping the Sabbath was you work six days, you take a day off to rest. That's what the Bible says. But that's really about all the Bible says about that. And so the issue was through the years questions came up, well, what, what do you mean by work, right? What, what, what constitutes work? In other words, what are we allowed to do? What should we not do in order to keep the Sabbath? And again, Scripture doesn't say much about that. It doesn't go into details about that. And so the rabbis, the religious leaders of the day, had, had sought to answer that question. And this is where, and this is what Jesus refers to often in, in the Gospels, is the traditions of the Pharisees, right? The traditions of men. The man had come up with their rules, right? This is not God's word. This is man's rules. And they had come up with all these categories of what they felt like constituted work. Um, There were 39 major categories, 39 categories that constituted work and therefore was prohibited on the Sabbath. That's what man had come up with. Um, and so that was, that was the, the rules of the land, according to the Pharisees, right? You know, they had all these different, if work, if something wasn't deemed absolutely necessary, you were not allowed to do it. I mean, they, they, they were, were precise about this, right? Unless a person's life was in danger, you weren't allowed to, to help them. For example, it was forbidden to set a dislocated hand or a foot on the Sabbath, A fallen roof may be temporarily propped up but not repaired. If a building fell, enough rubble could be uncovered to determine if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued, but if dead, the corpses must remain until sunset. So they had all these, I mean, that's just one example. There's 39 categories, right? They had all these stringent rules. And so when the Pharisees catch Jesus' disciples picking the grain from the field, they're like, "Uh uh-uh, that's wrong. And, and matter of fact, they had different categories that they would have said Jesus or Jesus' disciples were violating, right? They say, when you pick the grain, that's considered reaping, and reaping is forbidden on the Sabbath. And when you rub it together, that's considered threshing, and threshing is forbidden on the Sabbath. And when you throw the chaff up in the air, that's considered winnowing, and winnowing is forbidden. So, and, and by doing that, you're even preparing food, which is forbidden. I mean, you know, they would have said, you know, strike one, strike two, strike three, strike four, you're really out, Right? So according to their, their rules, the disciples had committed a quadruple violation. And so that's why they say, what you are doing is not lawful on the Sabbath. But Jesus' disciples were not breaking God's word. They were breaking the tradition of the Pharisees. But yet they still say, that's not lawful to do. Okay, that, That'll be a point I mention later. 
Okay, so how does Jesus respond to this accusation? Verse 3, he said to them, he takes them right to the word of God, right? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? It's, it's interesting, by the way, Jesus is going to do this about three different times, right? Have you not read or do you not know? Or, you know and he's talking to the religious leaders. These are the scholars. These are supposed to be the ex- experts in God's word. So have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? So if you know your Old Testament, Jesus is pointing back to a an actual event that took place in 1 Samuel 21. And at this point, uh, David has been anointed as the future king, but Saul is still the king, and Saul's jealous of David, right? And so Saul is trying to kill David. And so David's on the run from Saul. He's literally running for his life in 1 Samuel 21. And so because of that, David runs and flees to the city of Nob. And in, in, in hunger and desperation, David asks the priests there, for a sword and for food for, for he and his men. Well, if you read that account, the only food that, I mean, the priest gives him a sword, Goliath's sword actually, and then the only food that the priest had was the bread of the presence, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Well, what's the bread of the presence? Well, again, if you go back in the Old Testament and look at how God told them to set up the tabernacle and all the furnishings and, and the rituals there, the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that the priests baked weekly and they would set on a table in the holy place in the tabernacle. And those 12 loaves were to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So what they would do is they would, every Sabbath they would bake a fresh batch, put it in there as, as that symbolism, as that act of worship, um, and then they would take the old loaves and only the priests were allowed to eat those, the old loaves of bread, okay? That's, that's what uh, Leviticus 24 explained. So this bread was very sacred, right? I mean, this, this is bread that had been in the holy place in the tabernacle. This was bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And so what, what Jesus is pointing out to, to the Pharisees is, why did the priests let David and his men eat that bread. They weren't priests, right? Well, put yourself in the the shoes of the priest, right? It wasn't just because they were hungry. I mean, the priest, he knows the rules. He's not going to give that bread to just any Joe Schmo, even if that guy's hungry, right? Why did he give it to David? Because David was the Lord's anointed one. Okay. David was the Lord's anointed one. David had authority. And so the priest is like, yeah, it's, it's yours. Sure. So that's what Jesus is getting at. There was something unique about David. If David had the authority to eat consecrated bread from the tabernacle, then what about David's greater son who is standing right before them, the Lord's anointed, the promised Messiah? Now, again, as Jesus often does, he's, he's kind of speaking in a veiled way. But in this veiled way, Jesus is pointing to his uniqueness, his authority, something that he's going to actually be making even more explicit as we go through this text. Okay? So that's, that brings us up to verse 5. Jesus brings him another example. He's talked about David in that situation. 
verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless, right? So, again, under the Old Covenant, the Israelites were not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? Well, guess what was happening on the Sabbath? Guess what the priests were doing? I've already mentioned they were baking bread. They were replacing that. They were uh, preparing the burnt offering, that, so preparing the animals and, and sacrificing them. I mean, they were working like crazy on the Sabbath, right? They were busy. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the priests were not breaking the law by working on the Sabbath. Their work is a sanctioned work by God. Okay? So Jesus is, is, is showing the uniqueness, the authority of him. He's, he's showing that, for one, there's kind of exceptions to the rules. <laughs> and he's also pointing to the work that he is doing. He is doing the Father's work. David was an exception because of his authority. The priests are exceptions because they have authority to do what they did. God has granted the priests the authority to do that in the temple. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, what's he talking about? Himself, right? He's saying something greater than the temple is here, right before you. And I know it doesn't probably do it for us, but to the Jews, that was a shocking statement. I mean, they, they would have just fallen out of their chairs, right? The temple was the most important building in, in the world to the Jews. For the Jew, the temple was, was more than just a place of worship, although it was certainly that. It, it was the symbol of their nationhood. And, and really, you know, especially at that time, as they're under Roman rule, the temple was kind of like all that they had left as far as some kind of government and structure and things. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to even compare it to us today because we're not a theocracy, right? But, I mean, this, you know, the temple was kind of like their White House, their Congress, their, their, their worship place all in one, right? And so for Jesus to say something greater than the temple is here, that was an amazing statement to them. I mean, again, think about the temple. The temple was the place where God chose to have his presence dwell in a special way in the midst of Israel. And now Jesus is saying God himself has come to dwell among them in the person of Jesus. Isn't that what the, the gospel writers um, record for us? John 1.14 says, And the Word, right, the, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Many of you know that verb is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So yes, something greater than the temple was here, right? I mean, the temple was just a building where God chose to to let his presence dwell in a special way. But now God's very presence was among them. And so the point is, The Pharisees need to recognize who Jesus is. They're failing to recognize his authority. They're failing to recognize his uniqueness, his glory. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the promised Messiah. He is the eternal Son of God who's standing before them. And they're not recognizing that. All right, now in verse 7, Jesus hits the Pharisees with a third argument. 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Right? So Jesus is saying we are guiltless. We've, the disciples have not done anything wrong. And if you had under, it's basically him saying, if you had understood the scriptures, you wouldn't have accused us of this. Right? You see, your, your Bible has a quote there. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting from Hosea 6.6. 6. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because back in chapter 9, Jesus already quoted this verse. That was when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are like, why, why is he doing that? And Jesus quoted this, this verse then. We're in Hosea 6.6, 6, where the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what that verse shows us is that God has, this is important for us to understand, God has a scale of priorities that are important to him. Did you know that? And that's what that verse is saying. God is saying, if, if, you, if, if on one hand you have sacrifice, and if on one hand you have mercy, which is hesed, right, a very important word, in Hebrew, it's, it's God's covenantal, faithful love, loving kindness, mercy. If you have those two side by side, guess which is more important to God? Sacrifice or, or mercy? Mercy. That's what God is saying. I desire mercy over sacrifice. What God wants from his people is mercy, this loyal love, this loving kindness. I mean, isn't that what the scripture says? The the Bible says if you take all of God's law and you, you, you boil it all down, what is it? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, all your being. Love the Lord your God with all your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. You take all of God's law, that's what God wants. He wants love. Love for God, love for neighbor, right? That takes precedence over sacrifice, over formal rituals, over just going through the motions, certainly. I mean, the Bible consistently tells us that, that God cares more about the heart than about the outward actions, right? The outward, and what I mean by that is just the, the formal rituals. In, in Psalm 51, David's great psalm of confession and repentance, he says in Psalm 51, 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So you see, yes, sacrifice and ritual, they have their place. I mean, God, you know, explained how he wanted them to be doing those things. It's not that those are unimportant, but he's just saying what's more important is your heart. Because you can be doing these things. You can just be going through the motions and not be worshiping God at all, not be loving God. God or others at all, right? And I mean, case in point, the Pharisees, right? They were great at going through the motions. They were great about the rituals. And see, they put in a whole new layer and layer and layer of rituals that God's word didn't even put. And so the Pharisees had all of this out of whack. They focused on the outside, right? They focused on being super rigorous about regulations and rituals, all the while their hearts were far from God. And you know, Jesus has some very um, condemning rebukes for the Pharisees. You are whitewashed tombs, cleaning up the outside, doing all this meticulous stuff, but inside you're like dead men's bones. That's exactly what's happening here. 
So through all this, Jesus is showing the Pharisees that, number one, with their traditions, with their, with their um, rules and regulations, they've oftentimes mishandled the law. I mean, they just have flat out misinterpreted God's heart, God's word. And their rigid interpretation shows that they've failed to understand God's heart. That's one problem. Secondly, the second big problem in all this is the Pharisees, like I said, have failed to perceive, failed to grasp who Jesus is. Okay? So through all this, he's pointing out two main problems. You guys are mishandling the word of God, and you're not grasping who I am, (laughs) the living word, right? They're not recognizing that Jesus standing before them is the Messiah, the son of David. He didn't say this, but it was implied he is greater than David, right? Just like he said he's greater than the temple, he is greater than David. And for the exclamation point on all of this conversation, Jesus says in verse 8, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another statement that would have been huge to them. Because, again, remember, the Sabbath was like a, a centerpiece of their identity, of their worship, of who they, what they were called to do as a nation under this covenant. And yet, now Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. That was an incredible declaration of Jesus' Jesus's authority. God had instituted the Sabbath, and here Jesus declares authority over it. I mean, think about the rabbis of the day, right? It was inconceivable that another rabbi would have said that. No one would have had the the gall or the audacity to say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, because Jesus is putting himself squarely in the place of God. Because he is God, right? And the Pharisees need to recognize that. Of course, Jesus is actually, through all this, through him declaring, I am Lord of the Sabbath, and we're going to see this play out even in the next uh, passage. Jesus is actually rescuing God's original intention for the Sabbath. Right? Again, remember, the Sabbath um, was a day of rest and worship. In Mark's account of this, of this uh, scene, Jesus says this, For the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. But the Pharisees had made it a burden. With all the rules and regulations and don't do this and don't do that. and I mean, they had sucked all the life and the joy and the blessing out of what God had given to to be a, a refreshment to them. And so again, it just flows so nicely from chapter 11 when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who have been trying to keep the, all these regulations and traditions of the Pharisees and all these things that keep piling on you, come to me and you will find true rest for your souls. So this is highlighting who Jesus is and what he had come to do. So he's rescuing God's original intent for the Sabbath, and he actually is fulfilling the Sabbath by providing true rest. Rest from our our burdens of trying to please God. True rest 
salvation rest. So it's claims like this that is, is causing the opposition between Jesus and the Pharisees just to, to, to escalate because the Pharisees, they, they're getting what Jesus is saying and claiming. They don't believe it, right? But they're saying, wow, he is putting himself in the place of God. And so that's, that's why we'll see that the, they, they want to destroy him. So he's just declared that he's Lord of the Sabbath, and now he has the authority to declare the proper use of the Sabbath, and that's what we see happening in this next passage, beginning in verse 9. So look with me there, verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So we've got another thing happening on the Sabbath, Luke chapter 6 Uh, Luke's account of this tells us that this was a different Sabbath, so this isn't all happening on the very same day, maybe the very next week, I don't know. But Jesus is in the synagogue for a worship service. There's a man there with a withered hand as well. The Pharisees are there, and I mean, who knows, they may even have planted this man here, right? I don't know, but you know, the Pharisees, they're, they're watching Jesus, and they even come up to Jesus and ask him, is it lawful, there's that word again, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Matthew tells us they're asking this so they might accuse him. So again, according to the Pharisees' tradition, you're only allowed to help someone if there's an immediate danger to his life, which was not the case with this man's withered hand, right? I mean, he's lived this way for, who knows, maybe probably his whole life, right? So he's not in immediate danger. And so according to their rules, their traditions, no, it would be unlawful to help this man. (laughs) But what's so... Uh, tragic about this, this account is it just shows the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts and the blindness, right? I mean, they know. What do they know about Jesus? That he heals people. <laughs> and, and, and so, I mean, they've, they've done this, right? It, again, like I said, it's like they're trying to set up a trap for him. Of course, Jesus knows all this. But the Pharisees know that Jesus heals people, and so they figure he's very likely to heal this man with a withered hand. And if he does, then, oh, boom, they, they feel like they got him. We, yeah, you've broken the law, the law, and we can just mount this case against you. But all the while, for one, you know, their standard's wrong. We've talked about that. But for two, it's like, hello, guys. Are you not considering the fact that he's able to heal this man? <laughs> you know, it's like you're acknowledging that, but you're not really thinking about the implications of that. Don't you see there's something special about Jesus here? But the Pharisees are so full of hate that they're blind to who Jesus is. They would not stop to consider that the power of God was present in Jesus to enable him to do this. I mean, at the very least, they had to see this man is from God. By God's grace, one of the Pharisees later, Nicodemus, recognizes that, right? He wasn't totally been totally grasped who Jesus is yet, but he's like, you must be from God. No one can do the things you do unless, he's from, unless God's with him. But these Pharisees, are, they're, they're against Jesus. So verse 11, Jesus says to them, Well, which of you has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, I mean, basically, Jesus is just saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You know that? I mean, I could see Jesus saying, I've, I've seen you. I've, I've, I know that if one of your animals, one of your sheep falls into, what is it, a pit 
on the Sabbath, you're going to get it out, right? Why? Why would you do that? Well, because it's the kind thing to do, right? It's the compassionate thing to do to help this creature, to to show compassion to a, a living creature, even if it is the Sabbath. And then you see Jesus uses this lesser to greater argument that he uses a lot of how much more value then is a man, right? If you're willing to do that for an animal, well, the man is far more valuable than a sheep because all humans are made in the image of God, right? That's an important thing we always need to remember, especially in this culture of death, unfortunately. From the womb to the tomb, as they say, people have value because they're made in the image of God, right? And so Jesus says, This man, if you'll do good for an animal, why would you not do good for a man who's made in the image of God? And so then Jesus states definitively, in the end of verse 12, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now Jesus is making the declarations, right? He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'll declare what can be done on the Sabbath. And I'm telling you, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now this sounds a lot like Um, I think it was back in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus, um, when they're in the crowded room and you got the paralytic, remember, and Jesus makes this declaration, uh, says, your sins are forgiven, right? It's like Jesus declares this statement of authority that only God could do, right? I declare that your sins are forgiven. Same thing here. I declare that this is okay to do on the Sabbath, And just like in in Matthew 9, when Jesus made that declaration, it's kind of like he backs it up by healing the paralytic right in front of them. And that's exactly what we have happening here. Jesus makes this declaration, again, something only God could do to declare what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. It It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he backs it up, verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. So once again, Jesus shows his power. He heals the man with just a word. He demonstrates his authority. He's declared he's Lord of the Sabbath. He backs it up now by using his divine power to perform an act of mercy on the Sabbath. Here's another example right in front of their eyes of who Jesus is. Another opportunity for them to say, for them to repent and say, oh, Jesus, we are sorry, we... Man, we have really, wow, we've missed the boat, haven't we? We, we have, we've been blind to who you are. Please forgive us. You know, they should have been bowing before him. But no, what do they do? Verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. It's like their, their hearts are just getting harder and harder, right? And... By the way, again, it's tragic, but it's kind of ironic. <laughs> you know, who, who's breaking the Sabbath, right? I mean, who's, who's keeping God's intention for the Sabbath now? On the one hand, you got Jesus who's doing good. He's showing mercy. And on the other hand, you got the Pharisees who are conspiring to, to kill and you know, are full of hate. But the Pharisees, so again, this, we'll, we'll see the progression of this opposition against Jesus they're, they hate Jesus. He's, un, he's undermining their authority, right? Because he's calling them out and saying, a, a, a lot of your traditions are just 
rubbish, <laughs> right? You know, you've missed the boat. And so they want to hold on to that authority. They see Jesus as a threat, and so they're conspiring now how they can destroy him. All right, so that's, that's the passage. I, I, I pray and hope that you see it, it, how it's showing who Jesus is, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Let me just now quickly share with you these three dangers I wanted to highlight. Okay, three dangers of how our religion can go wrong. Three dangers that, that even as believers seeking to live out our Christian faith and follow the Lord, three dangers we, we can fall into. So may God give us ears to hear and and beware of this. Number one, our religion goes wrong when we elevate our rules to the level of God's word. Our religion goes wrong when we elevate our rules to the level of God's word. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They elevated their traditions to the level of God's word. We're going to see Jesus explicitly call them out for this later in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees saying, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, now he quotes Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow, that was a summary of the Pharisees, wasn't it? Again, hearts are far from God, teaching um, their traditions, their doctrines, as, is, as if it was the very word of God. So, they, they were wrong, right? That's huge, hugely wrong. And what, as I was thinking about that, churches or families could perhaps fall into the same danger. So let's be wary about that. We are called to obey the commands of Christ, Right? And, and certainly, in addition to the explicit commands of Christ, there are biblical principles we should follow. And then we know there are areas of freedom then, right? Christian liberty, we call it. Where we have to seek to, and discern to do what is best, what is pleasing to the Lord. Different churches and even different families within the same church may come to different convictions regarding areas of liberty. Now, what does the Bible teach us about areas of liberty? Well, for one, the Bible says we must be careful that we don't exercise our liberty in a way that causes our brother or sister to stumble, right? So again, talking about priorities, when you have love for brother versus your liberties, your rights, guess which is more important? Love for brother, right? And so in Corinthians, um, I think it's 14, I know it's Roman, uh, Romans 14 as well, talks about that, right? You know, remember the, about the eating meat? Paul said, if it's going to make my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again, even though I'm allowed to. That's how much I care about my brother. So that's one thing about, about Christian liberty is we got to make sure that it doesn't cause a brother or sister to stumble. But the danger I'm highlighting here today from the negative example of the Pharisees is when we elevate our conviction to the level of God's word. And so what would that look like? Well, when that happens, right, we've We've established a, a conviction, a standard, you know, we're not going to do this or we are going to, whatever it is. Fine, great. But when we then start judging and condemning other people who don't, haven't um, come to that same conviction, I think we're basically doing the same thing, aren't we? 
We're, we've elevated our conviction, an area of freedom, something the Bible didn't explicitly say, to the level of God's word and said, well, if you don't meet that, you're wrong. And loved ones, let us not do that, right? Let us not do that. Again, just, I'm just trying to give application here. I'm trying to, so take it for, and may ask God's help to apply it to your life. But even as I was trying to chew on that and think about the ways this might be present, probably not as explicitly as what the Pharisees were doing, but the ways this might be present. I'm thinking about parents and families, right? We have family rules for our kids, right? Great, we need family rules. It's chaos without rules, right? And it's a way of teaching. It's a way of training. It's important for us to teach our kids the outworkings of the gospel and, and what we... The, the importance of pleasing God and what we think that looks like in situations, right? And as we do that, I think we need to be important. It's important for us to distinguish between what the Word of God says and what's a family rule. And as our kids get older, it's going to be even more important to be having those, you know, more involved conversations about that, right? Because what are we trying to do as parents? We're trying to train them and teach them how to. Live a, live, follow Christ by God's grace, right? Follow Christ, live a life that's pleasing to the Lord on their own. We're not going to always be able to be there to say, don't do that, don't do this, and you shouldn't do that, right? And so, you know, may God help us. Again, we, we need rules. But may God help us to, as our kids get older, especially explain how we arrived at those rules and use that as a teaching tool. Training our kids to think biblically, so they can make godly decisions when they are on their own. And as I thought about this, I, I thought about many of you who've already <laughs> had kids leave the house, right? I'm not there, I'm close, but we're not there yet. And, and you know that as, as your um, children become adults and, and go out on their own, you do a lot of praying. I'm sure you do a lot of biting of your tongue, right? <laughs> as they work through these areas of of liberty. And, and as, as God helps them establish their own convictions. Okay, so that's one um, danger, one application. I want to save number two for last, so let's skip to number three on your outline. Our religion goes wrong, number three, when we fail to properly love others. When we fail to properly love others. The Pharisees, think about this, the Pharisees were super religious, right? They were meticulously dotting every I and crossing every T when it came to religious ritual, (laughs) but they failed to obey God's foundational command to love others. I mean, it's like they they had elevated themselves to doctoral level when they were flunking kindergarten, right? (laughs) You were to love others. Love God, love others, and they weren't doing that. Sadly, sometimes as Christians, we too forget that Jesus calls us to love others the way he has loved us. John 13, I think it's verse 34. That's the the new commandment. In the new covenant, Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. There's our marching orders, right? What does this look like? Again, there's many applications, but a few that I've sadly seen. I've seen husbands who want to argue meticulous points of doctrine, but all the while, 
They're treating their, their, excuse me, they're treating their wives like dirt. Something is out of whack there, right? If you're wanting to argue about, you know, whatever doctrine it is, but you are not being kind and loving to your wife, you need to go back to kindergarten, right, by God's grace and work on that. Another example could be well-intentioned parents who in their zeal for discipline and order fail to show grace and kindness to their kids. Okay, may God help us not to do that. Or church members who can worship God but then refuse to speak to each other. Or Christians who look down on unbelievers forgetting, what, forgetting about how God's grace has rescued them. You see, this is all out of whack. It's like we're seeking to worship God, which is good, but we're forgetting to love. Again, whether it's busyness or pride or self-righteousness or fear or just plain forgetfulness, too often, loved ones, we fail to love others with the love that we have been shown. Now, I purposely in this application point said to properly love others. I think that's important because our culture loves to trumpet Love, right? You know, our culture defines love as you must support and embrace my lifestyle, no matter what it is. And I'm not talking about that, right? We know that love also involves speaking the truth. It involves humbly telling others that they, like you, are a sinner who needs a Savior. And that Jesus is Lord. And pointing them to to repent repentance and faith in Christ, right? So that's properly loving someone else. Doing that with a humble heart, but speaking the truth. My point is, though, as followers of Christ, let us strive to show the love and compassion that Jesus did for others, right? That's what we're seeking to do. We're seeking to follow Jesus and become like him. So I trust that through these studies in Matthew, right? I know the gospels are long, But man, in all these accounts, we're getting to see how Jesus treats people. The love he shows sinners. The compassion he has on the hurting. And may God help us then to become more like Jesus by God's grace. Secondly and finally, right, back to point number two here. Our religion goes wrong when we rely on rules and routines rather than resting in Christ alone. Our religion goes wrong, secondly, when we rely on rules and routines rather than resting in Christ alone. This passage is, a, is a, like a flashing warning to beware of um, legalism. You know what legalism is? Sometimes we think, oh, if you have any rules, you're, you're a legalist. No, no, that's not what legalism is. What legalism is, is when you're depending on rule-keeping to make you right with God. That's legalism, okay? But the Bible teaches that no one can be good enough to earn salvation. God is holy. God cannot dwell with sin at all. But the Bible says we have all sinned. We all sin and fall short of the, of the glory of God. We, we've all sinned, and not only in deed, but also in thought. 
No amount of good works can pay for our sins or achieve for us the perfection that we must have in order to be with God in heaven. God is holy. He will not dwell with any sin. And so we need to recognize that, right? But the good news is God in his grace has made a way for us to be with him forever. And that's the good news of the gospel. That the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life. He always obeyed the Father. He always kept the law, outwardly and from his heart. And then he died in our place, paying the penalty for our sins. Again, I take you back to what Jesus said in this invitation. Chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll leave you that to, you can study that on your own, but it explains that through faith in Christ, we enjoy salvation rest. Do you know that? Through faith in Christ, we, we experience what Jesus was, was offering there in his invitation. Rest for our souls. Rest from working to try to please God. Rest, excuse me, rest from working to try to earn God's favor, I should say. Rest from, from trying to pay for our sins ourselves, right? If you think about it, that's what religion is, isn't it? It's people trying to, to do enough good works to pay for their, their sin, right? To, to tip the scale in their favor. So hopefully God will accept me. And we know that doesn't work. Because like I said, God requires perfection. But in Christ, we're given that perfection. Through faith in Christ, uh, his, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And all of our sins are paid for and cleansed. And so we have true rest. We have peace. Oh, loved one, do you believe or do you realize the peace that you have? The peace that is yours in Christ. That you're, you can lay your head down on the pillow. And, and the Bible says we've been set free from the fear of death. Because if something happens... Right? There was a fatal accident on, on Highway 198 yesterday. I don't know, Damien, if you were working and got called to that or not. But around right after noon, car rolled over, somebody died. We have the peace of knowing that if, if, if we lay our head down and don't wake up on this side, that we will wake up with God in heaven. Because of Christ, that is, that is true rest. And if any of you do not know that rest, I, I encourage you, I invite you, I, I, I urge you to, to um, set aside this, this, this burden of trying to make yourself right with God and just by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior so that you'll know you'll be made right with God. As Christians, so that, as Christians... And here's, here's where we've got to really be aware, too. Even as Christians, we can slip back into this spirit of legalism. And with this, I'll close. As Christians, we can kind of get this mindset 
of, oh man, the, the better we obey, the more God loves us, right? Or if we've, had a, if we've had a bad day of obedience, we think, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. And that's not true. That's not true. The Bible says that God the Father loves us with the very same love that he has for his son. We are, we are united with Christ. We are brought into that loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's nothing you and I could do as Christians to, to make God love us more or, or less. Right? So let, may we always remember that. Now, as believers, we are called to please God, to, to live for His glory. We want to live to, to, to please Him. That's different than earning favor with Him, right? Yes, we want to bring glory to Him through our lives. That's sanctification. And it should be said, even in our sanctification, even in our desire to grow in holiness for God's glory, let us be sure that we are depending on God's grace given to us in Christ. Okay, let me say that again. Even in our desire to grow in holiness for God's glory, let us be sure that we are depending on God's grace given to us in Christ. Routines and disciplines have their place. The Bible says, train yourself for godliness. But let's make sure that we truly depend on Christ, even in those routines and, and, and disciplines. Let us be sure that we're depending on Christ to sanctify us. I should have underlined it. That was, it just struck me as we were worshiping and singing this morning. That was one of the lines of our song, and now I don't even remember which one it was. The last one, all I have is Christ. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. You see what he's saying? Even, even in, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, pursue, run in such a way as to get the prize. But we're doing all of that independence on Christ. We're still resting in his grace. And so may God help us to keep resting in Christ. Because of Christ, we enjoy salvation rest, knowing that we are at peace with God and that we will be with him forever. And again, Hebrews 4 says, not only do we have a rest now, but we're looking forward to an eternal rest awaiting us in the future. Someday, loved ones, you won't have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil anymore. Someday, we will experience true and final rest because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he is the Son of Man and David's Son who has secured that rest for us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you and thank you for your grace to us. We praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, please enlarge our, our understanding and our our just view and, and, and embracing of who Jesus is. Please keep him central to us and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and, and live out 
and, and experience his rest, the rest that we have in Christ, and, and live that out as we follow him. Thank you so much for rest. Please be with any here today, Lord, who don't know that rest. They're, they're burdened. You've, by, by your grace, they're here. They're hearing the word of God. They're, you, you've been convicting them of their sin. Oh, please draw them to yourself. Please show them the rest that is theirs in Christ. Please help us as a church to, to bring glory to you. May, may your grace protect us from falling into any of these dangers, any of these pitfalls that, that the Pharisees had. May we be a church that loves you and loves others for your name's sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand, please, and we'll sing a, a final song of worship today.